Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. It's hard to be judged for one mistake, but it's what I'll be remembered for, I guess. I wasn't always the doubter. That's not who I am. I have a zeal for Jesus. I always have. When Lazarus died, no one wanted to return to Bethany with Jesus. The atmosphere there was volatile and dangerous. Jesus said he'd show us his glory. I assumed we'd all die there. Still, I'm the one who said, let's go. But then, then came this room. That night. At the time, none of us understood as we sat at that table. This is my body? This is my blood? He raised the dead. He, he cast out demons even. What could he possibly mean? I didn't doubt it when they told me he was dead. But how can you not doubt someone coming back to life? Some didn't doubt, but for me, it was harder. Maybe it was just that I didn't want to be disappointed. Many came after me who believed without seeing what I saw. Jesus called them blessed. Yes, I touched the place of the nails, the hole in his side, such definitive proof that I cried out, my Lord, my God. But that wasn't the only amazing thing. The Almighty One, he came back for me. He didn't want to leave me behind in my doubt. He says, I'm worth that, and I'll follow him anywhere for the rest of my life. Good morning, brethren. Last week, we encountered two of Jesus' disciples on the road to Emmaus. We looked at their emotions, what they were going through, the confusion, the distress, the fear, the grief, the disappointment that they experienced. But I would like to point out that that was not unique to them. The other disciples experienced very similar, equal emotions to them. But their life and their experience speaks to our 
experience today as well. The sentiments that we see in them, that we can witness in them through the account of the Gospels, are sentiments that we are bound to experience ourselves at one point or another in our life. And when life becomes difficult, hard, and we become tired and overwhelmed by challenges, trials, maybe grief, it is very common for us to ask a question that is a very often asked, where? Where is God? Or where was God when this or that happened? Why is God absent? Why can't I feel his presence? Today we're going to see what the disciples learned. And what they learned is something that we all need to keep firmly in mind and in our hearts. We're going to see that they learned that the Lord has not abandoned us. He has not left us in our hour of sorrow to languish all alone. He is present and will never, ever leave us or forsake us. But like the early disciples, we also need to learn not to question him, but rather believe in him. We're going to look at the account of that from the Gospel of John in chapter 20, beginning with verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Notice here that Jesus appeared to his disciples. Now, the, the two disciples that had been encountered, that encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus, had told the others of their experience and how they met with Jesus on the way and how they gathered together for a meal and, and, and how they recognized him from the breaking of a bread. And then he vanished from their presence. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. They experience similar emotions. Grief, despair, hopelessness, disappointment, hurt, emotional pain, fear. And now the various reports that they heard about Jesus' body not being in the grave, the rumor that he was risen, the two disciples that met him on the, on the road to Emmaus, they were, made them all, all these things made them puzzled. But even though they were puzzled, all these things had not dispelled their fear of the Jews. And so, because they were afraid of the Jews, they were afraid that what happened to Jesus might happen to them as well, they were in a closed quarters, in a, in a closed place, with all the doors shut, locked, basically. And suddenly, Jesus was right there among them. 
A moment he wasn't, the next moment, there he is, in the midst of them. He appeared to them just in the same way that he had vanished from being at the table with the two disciples that he met on the road to Emmaus. The doors were shut. That in itself could be a lesson for us. Are, are our doors, the doors of our heart, the doors of our life, shut to others? When do we close or lock the, the doors of our life, the doors of our hearts? When we want isolation. And we tend to isolate ourselves in our uncertainties, in our trials, in our pain, because it, it's almost like we feel like no one else could ever possibly understand what we're going through. And so we tend at least to isolate ourselves. We shut the doors of our hearts when we want to remain anonymous. We want to remain anonymous to the world. We don't want to be on the spot, especially for our faith. And we shut the door because of fear. Afraid of what others may be thinking of us or what others may even do to us. But notice that even though their doors were shut, Jesus met them right there in the same room as they were. Jesus meets us where we are. Notice that Jesus did not abandon his disciples because they were afraid. Instead, he entered their secret place, their heart, meeting them in their fears, meeting them in their doubts. And he was present. I think he was present even before he appeared to them, but they obviously couldn't see him. But notice the contrast, the striking contrast that the presence of Christ, Jesus Christ, makes in the disciples. We find them here locked up in a room in fear, in uncertainty, not knowing what to do, being lost in essence and, and, and very much afraid for their own life. But later, when the presence of God is manifesting them on the day of Pentecost, everything changes. We, we find them in their boldness, courageous, not being afraid, not being able to be stopped. In fact, at one point, even rejoicing at the fact that they were persecuted for the sake of Jesus' name. Quite a contrast, isn't it? And that's a contrast that the awareness of the presence of God and the very presence of God in us can make. Let's go to verses 20 to 22. And when he has said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Well, 
Jesus <coughs> pointed out the fact that he was not a ghost. He was not some sort of spiritual apparition. He showed him his body, the marks from his crucifixion. But it wasn't just a body like you and I have. For the very fact that the doors were closed and he did not have to knock on the door to, to be allowed in, he all of a sudden was there with them inside. So he, his body was a resurrection body, not limited by space and time, and yet capable of being manifested in a material way. And then he greeted them. Peace be with you. It's interesting that in this moment, that greeting that might be regarded as traditional or common in a way, in Hebrew, he probably said shalom. But right now it had a much deeper meaning. Don't we crave that peace when we find our hearts in turmoil? Don't we crave that peace when everything seems to be going wrong? When we're confused, lost, afraid, scared. And then Jesus comes into the picture. And he says, peace be with you. Shalom. It's not a mere greeting. But it is indeed a comforting of the disciples with his peace. And then Jesus commissioned them. He sent them out into the world as his representatives. They were sent to the world, <laughs> interestingly enough, they were sent to the very world they were so afraid of. But they would be able to do so only after they have received the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere we read that Jesus instructed them to remain in Jerusalem until they were given power from on high, given the Holy Spirit, and only with the presence of God in them, they could face that world that they were so afraid of right now. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins will have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. It's a little bit of an awkward statement, and sometimes regarded as a little bit cryptic. It's not, first of all, what is not, it is not a personal authority that Jesus has given you and I, um, has given us personally over sin. Only God has that authority over sin. But most scholars seem to agree that it was a matter of acting as God's agents to pronounce what is the prerogative of God. But only when he himself would pronounce it. The forgiveness of sin is at the core of a new covenant. It's the very essence of the gospel. And Jesus gave them the privilege of announcing God's own terms for forgiveness. In other words, if one believes in Jesus, a Christian would have a right to announce his or her forgiveness. Based on what? Based on their belief in Christ and based on the fact that Christ, by his authority, by God's authority, 
has promised to forgive the sins of those who believe in him, who accept his sacrifice. But if one rejects the sacrifice of Jesus, there is no other sacrifice available. Then a Christian could announce that such a person is not forgiven. So according to these scholars, this statement simply means that we have been given the privilege to announce what God determines. Verses 24 and 25, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, or in his hands the imprints of the, of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand on him, into his side, I will not believe. So we find here, Thomas doubts and questions. And we have addressed in the past how much we are indebted to Thomas for asking the questions that perhaps we would be ashamed to ask. But Thomas was not the only one to have doubts. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28 and verse 17, states that other disciples also doubted as well. Thomas perhaps was the one who voiced those doubts and demanded evidence. He did not doubt, however, that they had seen something. They did not, he did not doubt that, that they, those reports were true. He just simply doubted the nature of what they saw, the nature of what they experienced, and he, and he stated that he wanted evidence of what they saw, or they claimed they saw. Verses 26 and 27. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it in, into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. What we find here is an amazing response for Je from Jesus. Now, from a human perspective, you probably would expect Jesus to be displeased with Tom Thomas. I mean, Thomas, you, you spent so much time with me, how dare you not to even understand or believe what I announced already, that it would happen. But Jesus was not displaying that attitude. Instead, we see him come to Thomas, meeting him where he was, in his doubts, in his weakness. Jesus, even though Thomas in that moment might have had a weakness or doubts, Jesus did not abandon him, but helped him believe and understand. And you know, like I said before, Thomas is more like us than, than he may appear to be. How often, how often do we want to understand something before we can believe it? Here, however, Jesus was showing Thomas and through him all of us that it is in believing that we come to understand the things of God. Without an element of faith, we will never look at the world and life 
the way that God does. We will question everything. We will not understand. Just like many who do not accept Christ, who do not accept even the existence of God, thinking that they thinking of themselves as being wise, they actually become fools because they think they know, but they really don't. And so the lesson here is that we don't need to understand to believe, but we do need to believe in order to understand. Verses 28 and 29, Thomas answered the Lord and said to him, My Lord, my God, And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. This is an amazing witness for all of us. Here we find a skeptical man confronted with the evidence of Jesus' resurrection and his presence, confessing that Jesus is God manifested in the flesh. Think about that for a moment. God manifested in the flesh. That is Emmanuel, God with us. Once again, Emmanuel, God with us. Not God apart from us, not God away from us, but God with us. You see, Jesus sought them. He manifested his presence so that they and us through them would know and would know that he is present. He has not abandoned us and he does not abandon us because we are afraid or because we have some questions and doubts or anything like that. Finally, verses 30 and 31 Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Notice that there was so much more that Jesus did that was not recorded, that was not written. But John here tells us that enough has been recorded, however, for us to be able to believe and understand. So why writing these things? He stated very, very clearly that we may believe in Jesus as Messiah, in Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, as the Messiah that they were waiting for, and because we believe in him, have life in his name. But it is in our belief that we come to understand the real meaning of life. It is in our faith that we can finally come to understand who we are and what it really means to be human. If we want to really understand what it means to be human, we don't want to look at ourselves because we're flawed. We're not right. We, we are humans in, in, the, in the wrong way of being human. We are sinners. We messed up the meaning, the very meaning of being human. If we want to understand what it truly means to be human, we want to look at Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the perfect human, the only 
perfect human. And in him, we can see the true meaning and the true potential of what it means to be human. It is in our belief that we can begin to understand the meaning and the purpose or even of trials. And that in due course, all things will work out for our good. Yes, all things. Not just the things we like, but all things. Even those moments when we experience pain and sorrow. Even those one day we will work out for our good. Brethren, Scripture tells us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And it is in Him, in Jesus Christ, that we walk that way that He is. And as we walk that way, as we are His followers, as He lives in us and us in Him, that's when we point out that way to others as well. We believe the truth that He is. And as we believe it, we also proclaim it to others. We live the life that He is, the life that He gives us, that we have in Him and, and He shares with us. And as we live the life that He is, we also share it with others. You see, we're not called to be islands on our own. We're called to share. We're sent to share Jesus Christ Himself, to proclaim His presence, especially when we don't perceive it, especially when we ask those questions. In those moments when we ask that question, where is God or where was God when this happened? We are sent to proclaim that He is present, just like He was present with His disciples in their moment of crisis. Even though we can't see Him and touch Him as they did on that day, we know through their experience and through the lesson that we learn that He is present. Whatever may happen to us, He is there. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And we should never forget the words that Paul shared with us from God in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, where he wrote, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or peril, or swords. But just as is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And certainly these are circumstances in which we would ask, we would be tempted at least to ask a question, where is God in all these trials and troubles I'm going through? But notice what Paul writes. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from a love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, 
our Lord. And there we have it. He is with us, brethren, and nothing, nothing in, in all of creation can ever change that. Nothing in all of creation can ever separate us from the love of God that is expressed in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let's never forget that. God be with you. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me. For the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Undaunted radiance is not built on anything passing, but on the love of God that nothing can alter. The experiences of life, terrible or monotonous, are impotent to touch the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus.
given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Amen.